0: So our next speaker is Carl Frey, who's also from the Oxford Martin School. Um, He's Oxford Martin City Fellow and Founding Director of the Programme on the Future of Work at the Oxford Martin School. Um, He's also a Senior Fellow in Economic History at Lund University and a Senior Fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford. Now in 2013, Carl co-authored with Mike Osborne, uh, who's someone well known to quite a lot of us, uh, a very influential paper on the future of employment, estimating that 47% uh, of American employment is at risk of automation within the relatively near term. And uh, that since gained over 5,000 academic citations and caused a lot of uh, anguish uh, about what will happen with AI taking all our jobs. Well, I think philosophy jobs are relatively safe for a bit yet. <laughs> but Carl, over to you. <laughs> Great. So thank you very much, Peter, for that uh, very generous introduction. Um, so um, I realized that I'm just going to touch on one of the bullet points of roughly 20-something uh, AI governance challenges that Alan mentioned. So um, if you want to have your the relevance of your research being put in perspective, you go to the Future of Humanity Institute, and you find out that you're actually on just a very, very tiny, small question uh, related to all the challenges. Uh, that there are out there um, so um, the the topic that i'm going to focus on is what is artificial intelligence and automation uh, mean for the labor market and for those of you who uh, follow the debate and discussion are well, basically two very opposite views out there one is that there's going to be this employment uh, apocalypse Uh, Artificial intelligence is going to take all the jobs. Uh, I'm commonly associated with that one. And and there's the other perspective, which is that if we only look to history, uh, we should feel quite reassured because automation has been progressing for centuries uh, and perhaps even uh, millennia. And and what I try to do in my recent book is actually to go back uh, and look to history and what has happened to people and their lives as the jobs were um, displaced. And the question I try to ask is, should we feel that reassured if the future of automation mirrors the past? Now, I'm sort of covering roughly 10,000 years of history in the book, and I'm not going to cover all of that in 15 minutes, but I'm intent to at least give you sort of a glimpse of um, the things that are covered in the book. And so uh, the first story, uh, in the book has to do with the fates of the lamplighters. Um, so around 100 years ago, and uh, the streets of Oxford would, around this time, be lit by lamplighters tri- walking around the streets with uh, torches and ladders. Um, and to lamplighters, uh, the arrival of electric light was an enormously disruptive event. Um, as electric street light was increasingly regulated from substations, their jobs were made redundant. And, and for lamplighters, who essentially supported themselves and their families um, um, on these jobs, uh, they were naturally not that uh, happy with what was happening. Um, and in Brussels in 1907, lamplighters took the streets in fear of losing their jobs and smashed <laughs> the electric streetlights. And this situation escalated with the police being sent out the lamplighters ended up raiding police headquarters and the army had to be uh, sent in to resolve the situation. Now, well, there's a tendency to ridicule people like the lamplighters of being backward and Luddites. And, and when we do this, we tend to focus very much on the very long run of technological and economic progress. So up until roughly 1800, growth across the world was fairly stagnant. And that is not to say that nothing happened. There was a lot of innovation and progress going on, but per capita uh, incomes didn't rise significantly. Um, And incomes per capita uh, did uh, only really take off with the first industrial revolution, with the first machine age, with the mechanized factory that allowed us to produce with more with fewer people. And as a result of mechanization over the past 200 years, the average person in Britain is now roughly 30 times better off uh, than they were in 1800, adjusted for inflation. Um, And if we only look at incomes, that, if anything, understates the transformation that has taken place, because needless to say, the consumer basket that people have access to today is very different from the consumer basket that people had access to in 1800. Uh, So most people then could only dream about all of these goods and services that are now part of everyday life for us. And a lot of these things are not even accounted for in the GDP statistics. So consider, for example, what you would pay for anesthesia if you undergo heart surgery. Uh, the amount would be almost infinite, right? And uh, its contribution to GDP is basically zero. Um, and if that is not evidence of a lot of progress, consider the fact that producing those higher incomes and producing all of these additional goods and services has become a lot more comfortable as well. Uh, During the first industrial revolution, a significant share of the workforce worked in coal mines. Cave-ins and explosions were part of everyday working life. Lung disease often part of the work package. Today, most of us work in air-conditioned offices. And, And if we merely look at sort of the sectoral transformation, that if anything understates the progress that has taken place because a lot of individual jobs have been transformed as well and uh, so back in 1900 a, tra- uh, a farm laborer would walk the fields with nothing more than animal power today a farm laborer in britain will sit in his or her tractor and listen to the music of his choice uh, so working life has gotten a lot better uh, the question is what happened to all those people that went through this transformation. Um, and if we go back to the Industrial Revolution and look what people said about it back then, I think we can find some instructive answers. Uh, so in uh, 1848, Benjamin Disraeli, before he became prime minister of Brit- Britain, published a novel in which one character remarks that I see cities, people with machines. Certainly Manchester must be the most wonderful place of modern times. And the very same year, Frederick Engels published his uh, book on the conditions of the working classes, which was written during precisely a stay in Manchester. Um, and Engels had a very different take on the matter. He argued that machinery only serves to downgrade people, it puts them in the repetitive motions of the machine, which he deemed to be unnatural, and it only serves to put pressure on workers' wages um, and potentially even displace them from their jobs. Now, we all know that he was uh, not quite on target about the future, but he was actually fairly on target about the period he lived through, because for roughly seven decades, even as the British economy took off, wages were stagnant and probably even falling at the lower end of the income distribution. The wage data for this period is not great, but if you look at other sources of data, like consumption or biological um, indicators of well-being such as heights, we find that the courts born in 1850 were actually shorter than the courts born in 1750. And part of the reason for that is that people's nutrition was adversely impacted as they were displaced from domestic and industry. And a and puzzle <laughs> to economists and economic historians has always been, why would people voluntarily have agreed to participate in the industrialization process? if it reduced their utility? Well, the simple answer to that is that they did not. They rioted against the Mechanist Factory on several occasions. They petitioned to Parliament to block the introduction um, of machinery. And how did the British government respond? Well, on several occasions, actually, by sending on troops against the rioters. And the army, for example, that was sent out against the Luddites was larger than the army that uh, Wellington took Um, against Napoleon in the Peninsula War in 1808. And and the Luddite riots that we all tend to focus on were only part of a long wave of riots that swept across Britain, continental Europe, India and China. Resistance to mechanization has actually been more of the historical norm uh, rather than the exception. Now, the point is obviously not that, you know, we are about to live through all of this history again, But I think it's at least put some of our current concerns in perspective. And and what we do see today is that since roughly the 1980s, with the computer uh, revolution, inequality in Britain and the United States has been approaching levels not seen since the first Industrial Revolution. Uh, And clearly, there are many variables that have shaped patterns of inequality, uh, but technology is certainly one of the key factors. and and the technology today could not be more different than the steam-powered machines of the first industrial revolution but what they do have in common with computers is that they are replacing in a variety of tasks the way that uh, spinning machines replaced artists and craftsmen uh, computers are now replacing a variety of jobs and in the labor market and It is certainly true that computers have been with us for a long time. Uh, The first electronic computer was developed at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in 1947, but it consisted of 18,000 vacuum tubes and weighed 30 tons, and as a result of that, it didn't have much impact on the labor market. And this has been true with all technologies. It's taken a long time for the technology to become sufficiently good and sufficiently cost-effective to have a real impact and on jobs and people's lives and for some of us computerization has been great for me as an academic i can do more statistical analysis i can write more papers and i can export my uh, ideas and thoughts to the world Um, but for a lot of people especially those uh, with lower levels of skills and especially men who used to work on the assembly lines in factories it hasn't been great And and if you look at data from the United States, what you see is not just that inequality is rising, but the wages of prime-aged men with no more than a high school degree has actually been falling in real terms since the 1980s. And as I mentioned earlier, the income distribution is shaped by a lot of factors, but if you want to explain why particularly prime-aged men on lower levels of education have seen their wages fall, Globalization and automation are the prime factors. And of course, they are very much interrelated. Without computers, it would be completely unfeasible for businesses to relocate or restructure supply chains in ways that they could take advantage of cheap labor and in countries like China. And we have already seen a backlash against globalization, but automation has had very similar effects on the labor market. And, and if you want to understand why President Trump won three key swing states, but they've been won with it by the Democratic candidate every election since 1992, um, automation is one of the key reasons. Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania are all Rust Belt states, which have been both heavily hit by automation and, and globalization. And you can debate the relative merit of these two variables, but they're both driven by technology, and they all both reflect what has already happened. Looking forward, the rise of China has taken place. It's not going to happen one more time, Uh, but looking forward, the potential scope of automation is getting uh, much bigger. Because all of this relates to sort of the rule-based era of computing with the programmers specifying what the technology should do at every given contingency. Uh, with various machine learning techniques becoming more pervasive, we are gradually sort of going uh, beyond the automation of routine rule-based activities into a variety of things like machine translation, like diagnostics, like document review, uh, like even potentially driving cars. Um, And beyond artificial intelligence, I think one reason that a lot of people uh, underestimate the potential scope of automation, is that the technology doesn't need to be capable of doing what you do in your job in order to replace you. We didn't automate away the jobs of lamplighters by building robots capable of timing lampposts. We didn't automate away the jobs of laundressers by building robots that would walk out of the house, shop down woods, carry buckets of water and wood into the home and heat it on the stove and then perform the motions of hand washing. We did that by inventing an electric washing machine. Now, I've spent uh, about eight years of my life Uh, discussing the 47% and uh, the future (laughs) of automation. So I'm only going to mention the fact that we think that a lot of occupations and industries um, are affected by the expanding scope of automation, in particular, retail and office uh, support tasks and uh, tasks related to transportation and material moving. And when we published this study eight years ago now, uh, roughly, Um, um, we also published a very detailed list about 702 occupations and their relative exposure to automation so everybody can look at what those predictions are and can compare retrospectively how things um, are going Um, and one occupations that we were constantly teased for was that we found that fashion models um, are exposed to automation and the models (laughs) on this picture actually don't exist they've been created through generative adversarial networks and they actually have their own Instagram accounts. Uh, Now, needless to say, uh, the future of the labor market is not just going to be determined by the first order effects of automation. There are going to be a lot of second and third order effects that are much more harder to predict, but we know that they at least existed historically, right? So when factories electrified early on, for example, all that factory owners did was replacing the steam engine with an electric motor as the central power source of the factory, all these shafts and counter shafts remained intact. And it took engineers a little while to figure out that, well, you can actually equip every single machine with its own electric motor, and then you can sequence those machines according to the natural flow of production, which gave rise to mass production, allowed uh, Henry Ford to be, produce the Model T as a, at a sufficiently low price for it to become the people's vehicle. And those techniques then spread from industry to industry, that's an enormous expansion. Of manufacturing as prices come down and the demand for manufacturing goods went up and if you look at the first automobiles they basically look like a horse carriage right so all we did was essentially replacing the horse with an internal combustion engine and to drive it and it took a while for people to figure out that we need a complementary infrastructure we need traffic laws and you know you rise to a lot of jobs in retail in uh, um, road commerce and so on and so forth. All of these were secondary effects that nobody could imagine at the time, but they really reshaped the economy. Um, but all of this, in the end of the day, depended on the exception um, uh, of uh, this new technology. And, and I do think that Leontief was onto something when he suggested that if uh, horses could have joined the Democratic Party and voted, what happened on the farms might have turned out differently. They could have used a political clout, to bring the spread of the factory to um, a halt. And and this is essentially what the Lord has tried to do. Uh, And a lot of people did quite successfully for uh, centuries before, because usually governments sided with angry workers rioting against the mechanized factory. If you want to understand why Britain was first industrialized rather than France, this is actually one of the prime reasons. Uh, because machinery resistance in France <laughs> occurred very much also during the revolu- revolutionary era where governments didn't have the political clout to squash um, the machine rights in the same way that the British government did. Um, and you see also in China, uh, machinery rights were actually quite successful up until the turn of the 20th century. So the sort of historical patent has actually been one of resistance um, to these technologies. Now, do we see this happening again? Well, we can at least highlight some examples. So, um, We didn't actually suggest that 47% are planned to be automated. Uh, It's not a conspiracy. Um, But these are nonetheless um, uh, um, people striking against the introduction of autonomous cargo cargo trucks in Los Angeles. Uh, These are truck drivers in the state of Missouri demanding legislation to block the introduction of um, autonomous trucks. Um, And more broadly, a recent Pew Research Survey suggests that the majority of Americans now think that there should be limits to the number of machines that businesses should be allowed to implement. And so, uh, do I think that we're going to see a lot of resistance to mechanization in the future? The simple answer is um, I don't know, but it has been the historical norm. And if people don't uh, see the benefits of technology in the short run, they surely have some incentives to resist it. And, and we should also remember that when economists speak about the short run, they're not very specific about what the short run is. And it kind of matters whether it's 20 hours, 20 days, or 20 years. Uh, in the context of the first industrial revolution, it was seven decades mm-hmm. since the 1980s. Wages for certain groups in the labor markets have been falling consistently, and, and it's not a very sort of healthy state of affairs. So I think we need to sort of think about what policies we need to help people Um, in this um, short run, and I do touch upon them in the book um, as well, Uh, but I think I'm probably running out of time, so thanks very very much.